welcome to Data Science Perspectives. This series focuses on analytics and data science professionals from across industry to learn about how their career unfolded, what skills they look for when hiring, and what trends they think are coming next. I'm your host, Bill Franks. Let's get to it. Welcome to this episode of Data Science Perspectives. I'm your host, Bill Franks. Today, I'm lucky enough to be joined by Wes Char. I first met Wes a number of years ago when he was an SVT at Turner Broadcasting here in Atlanta, back before uh, the AT&T acquisition. When Wes was at Turner, he drove development of innovative solutions for audience targeting and advertising inventory management. He's currently the Chief Data and Analytics Officer at Philo, which is targeting regulatory compliant cloud offers. In between Turner and Philo, West was the Chief Data and Analytics Officer for Catalina USA, which is a pioneer that's well known in the analytics space for consumer goods and retail. West helped Catalina bring new data and methods to the long-standing analytical offerings, and he's bringing that to Philo. Early in his career, West spent a lot of time working in revenue management, both for Delta Airlines and Sabre. For those who might not be familiar with Sabre, they're one of the uh, organizations that really led the way in defining how revenue management still works today. I've always known Wes to dream big and push the limits. The various awards he and his team have won over the years show that he can get success. He has a PhD in aerospace engineering from the University of Texas. And with that, let's welcome Wes to the show. Hey, Wes, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Bill. Good to see you. So one thing I, I always like to start with you know, is that people in data science have such varied backgrounds. Now, you initially had a PhD in aerospace engineering. So what originally brought you over to our world of analytics and data science? Well, uh, I always followed so uh, the airline industry. Uh, I was always interested in the airline industry. And I realized way back when in the 90s that they were actually early pioneer in using data to really run the airlines. So the whole fields of revenue management, when you sell a seat, uh, at what time, to which consumer, how you actually design flight scheduling, uh, crew scheduling, and other things that the airlines do is actually driven mathematically with you know, uh, operations research and, and algorithm fundamentally. So being in aerospace, actually, I, I was more, uh, if you want to call it a guidance, navigation, and control guy. Uh, I wasn't doing fluid mechanics or something. And that particular area of aerospace engineering is actually stochastic systems, estimation theory, control theory, a lot of the mathematics that I thought, wow, could be used maybe to do revenue management. And I pitched this idea to uh, Sabre at the time, uh, which was part of American Airlines. Uh, and when they were starting a research division, they liked the idea. And within a couple of days, I was basically uh, uh, offered a job. Uh, at Sabre and to move to the airline space and do something different. It was really exciting. And uh, I never looked back. I never looked back. I enjoy my aerospace days, but never looked back. I've been now in uh, data science for what, 24 years? Uh, more than 20 years, certainly. Uh, well, it's interesting. You, you, you hit on something else I wanted to, to get into, which is, you know, your early career was spent really deep in the airline space, you know, Delta Airlines, Sabre, and, and back in the days uh, that you were starting in that work, the analytics weren't as well developed. Obviously, the, the processing power and data available was less. So what were some of the initial challenges and successes that you had in the early days of revenue management? Well, I started in the late 90s. So there were typically the, the revenue management solution in some sense uh, that have been, if you want to call them, uh, out there for a while. 
there was, you know, this one idea at the time, you know, how we can improve forecasting by maybe creating a multiple model framework rather than a single model of forecasting, you know, have a number of models that can maybe work together to understand that yeah, this model is better at forecasting maybe business behavior or business demand versus leisure demand. But what happened in the late 90s, obviously with internet, it really took us all the airlines into a new space. So one area that really came at the time was, wow, not do I only have my data now, but the data of other airlines, correct? Because you can go and, and look at what other airlines are offering online. That changed the whole thing. So it moved revenue management from the traditional, I'm living within my own data, I don't see anything else. The internet in the late 90s allowed everyone to see everyone, correct? Because the people are making their, their products available online for the consumer directly. So that created something at the time called Comp RM, and Comp stands for competitive. Competitive revenue management was the idea go scrape the data that you can scrape correct from the internet every night correct process it uh, understand estimate what you think you know is happening you know at your competitors whatever and make those decisions so it was the first time where revenue management was not simply with your own data with your own silos but now you know you're getting signals from outside from the marketplace to really make smarter decisions and i guess one thing that would be interesting because a lot of people might not know this which is, as you mentioned, Sabre started out as part of American Airlines and then they, they spun it out, right? And, and Sabre ended yeah. up then basically servicing and being an innovator for all of the, uh, the uh, airlines, right? All, all the airline industry, not only did they just do that. So when it started with American, to your point, but there was such demand actually in the marketplace for airlines, not only in the United States, but all around the world. So actually Sabre is the name for the global distribution system, but actually, it has an airline solution business, which at least at the time when I was there, served airlines all around the world. But the other thing that they also have, they have also their travel network, but they also launched Travelocity. Travelocity was with one of the earlier companies in the late 90s, mid 90s, late 90s, that was selling airline, you know, airline tickets and, and, and hotel bookings and various other things and bundling when Amazon was selling books. So they were pioneer even in moving in some sense, the agency world from, a, you know, the way you, you would think about it before internet to what's called the OTA, the online travel agency. So they were pioneer of that. On top of that, you know, they had made an acquisition at some point and even got in the hospitality industry with Synexis. So it's Sabre is a variety of things, travel and transportation really at scale. So what I find interesting then, you went from years in that industry, focusing on the revenue management problems, and then you, you popped over to Turner here in Atlanta, which is where I had, had originally met you. And on the yes. surface, right, people would think, well, what is it? What is a Turner Broadcasting Systems and the media world have anything to do with revenue management? But my guess is you can explain that they're not as distinct from each other as, as people might at first think. Well, I mean, there is a lot of yield and, and smart decisions that need to be made in getting that maximum yield correct from advertising. If you think of airtime, correct, on networks, correct, that's in some sense, you know, how you schedule the, the you know, the, the, the ads, uh, do, do you give this, this campaign a particular spot at eight o'clock or do you give another campaign that particular spot? And imagine in some sense, thousands of campaigns, typically there are thousands of campaigns running every day in, uh, and you have thousands of decisions that you have to make correct every day on how you schedule those ads and why, you know, this one needs to go here and this one needs to go there. The, the reason is, let me explain, because every campaign has a guarantee, correct? And, you know, a guarantee, let's just say perhaps viewership, how many people are going to see this campaign? As an example, 
well, if you don't meet your guarantees, you're going to owe more airtime, correct, to satisfy, you know, your commitments, what you signed with that campaign. That is why, you know, optimization and, you know, yield management and revenue management comes mm -hmm. into play in, in, in that setup. And, you know, that was initially one of the earlier projects we did, which we called ad scheduling. Uh, and uh, but, but besides that, there are other things, obviously, that, that the media companies would benefit from, from, you know, stochastic system, estimation theory, all the analytics tool that you can think of. But that was the first one. It was, hey, come on in, Wes, you know, work with you, build a team and start working to resolving basically the ad scheduling problem, which has a lot of flavor and similarities with revenue management, actually. And then from there, you ended up at uh, Catalina USA, which, you know, again, people of our generation remember, they were really a pioneer in the retail and CPG space. Back in the old days, a lot of couponing uh, focus and so forth, obviously moved more uh, digital based in, in recent years. But uh, what were some of the things that uh, and innovations that you saw happening in that space in your in your time at yeah. Catalina? Yeah, so certainly. So the, the company is well known, to your point, uh, if you want to call it, they are at the bottom of the funnel. Historically, at least they were, correct? So the idea, you know, you're at your store, at the retail store, you're, you're checking out, and then you have that paper coupon that prints out, correct? Because they can identify you through frequent shopper card and make that promotion, that offer for you, correct? At the, at the, at the checkout uh, lane. Uh, well, with the, if you want to call it the explosion of channels, correct, on how people can buy, correct, and where people perhaps can be reached. It's not anymore in store. Uh, you know, it's in the past, maybe it was in store and a paper. We're talking, you know, there is a lot of mediums by which you can reach consumer. So we're talking digital, mobile, addressable TV, social, uh, radio, satellite radio. How could you reach consumers, you know, from a company that just did, uh, if you want to call it paper couponing. So the way, you know, companies do that, all around you know the, the country is basically they build an id graph so the id graph is in some sense the crosswalk from a frequent shopper card to all these channels correct it connects the consumer to all these channels and then you know that was one of the things that had to be built at catalina at the time but also that allows you know a, a variety now of things to happen so let me explain number one now you are connected at any point of that funnel correct you're not anymore at the at the if you want to call it at the checkout lane but then the other thing that happens, if you have your data set, you can enrich your data, correct? Enriching your data set allows you to do other services for other companies. So you can see in the news, you know, if you Google and see, you know, where, who's partnering with Catalina, what you find out is that, you know, now they become a player in the TV ecosystem. They can be also player in the, you know, data as a service uh, vertical. And now they are, you know, a player in the audience data and measurement business, correct? So the whole thing was driven really by that connection of that data that they had to other dimensions, to other channels, if you want to call it, and taking the data set that you have and enrich it. Any data set, you know, Bill, you, I think you would agree with that, has only so much value. I mean, I love it when people say, oh, we throw, you know, we can throw machine learning and whatever over the same data set and get more. You can get more, not, not necessarily significant. You may get a small increment at some point. But, but to take a data set and really provide it a new dimension, a new value, you have to fuse it, you have to integrate it, you have to enrich it with something else that will provide suddenly new insight that you didn't have. So the, the key thing that happened basically is building the ID graph, connecting to new channels and really enriching the data set. And that drives obviously business data as a service, a, an audience business, a measurement business, an attribution business, and a, a player in the TV ecosystem. So that's basically what, you know, what, what happened during my tenure over there for three and a half years almost. 
It's funny, your mention of data, I remember I wrote a blog a couple of years ago and, and the general premise was, if, I, if I'm looking at a given model and you give me two choices, I can use the latest, greatest modeling methodology that just came out on the same data, or I can use a so-so methodology, but incorporate some brand new data that actually has some, some distinct information in it. I'll take the, you know, the new data every single time because the data itself, that, that extra information will overpower Correct. whatever minor lift you might get from a slightly improved modeling methodology. Exactly, exactly. So you're, you more recently went to, to uh, a startup called Philo, and, and, and I don't know that many listeners would know much about uh, what they do. So what are you up to there and how are you applying all of this background uh, in that new environment? So, yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm helping Philo build a, a data team, a data and analytics team. Uh, they are a startup that is focused on uh, the highly regulated industries such as CBD and cannabis, uh, which is really, uh, you know, how, how do you say, is observing an incredible growth. Uh, the industry today is $10 billion. I was actually surprised that it is today a $10 billion industry in 2021, which is expected by end of 2025 to be close to $60 billion. I mean, this is how explosive you know, is the growth of that business and, and this product. So if you think of it in some sense, they have you know, uh, interesting capabilities. Number one, they are a compliance company. So they have a compliance cloud because it's a highly regulated industry. So they are, uh, you know, uh, they are uh, the only one out there with the, with the capability of providing services regarding regulations, correct, and laws that changes, correct, not only by state, but by county, by city, even by, by my neighborhood, even. Uh, so that's one thing. So there is the regulation business, but then the other business is obviously the data business, correct? The promotion, the loyalty program, et cetera. That is no different in some sense. Or, or similar, if you want to call it, to some of the other things that I've done in the loyalty space. So as you look across your career, and obviously you've done a lot of roles and a lot of interesting problems, is there a specific trait? Like what's one trait you think that you have that's really helped you be successful in navigating this career that you've had? Uh, I mean, I am really an 80-20 kind of guy. I love my data scientists, but I'm not a 95-5 type person. I, I think... Uh, you know, especially in the fields that we're working in. It's not like I'm working in a medical field where you need, you know, if, if you're working in fields and, you know, you get 80% of the value and you can implement that rather than getting 95% of the value, things change so fast, Bill, that, you know, I prefer to take 80% of the value and develop something in six months rather than waiting a year and a half to get 95%. Because in six months, you have a new problem. Things change so dynamically. So one of the traits I would say, you know, people have always said, you know, you're the sales guy who can sell mathematics. You're the sales guy that can, you know, how do you say, talk about data, talk about analytics without really uh, perhaps uh, overwhelming sometimes maybe the business people, correct, with the details of the algorithm. Really sit down with the business folks and explain the value proposition, why we're doing that. I would say someone who has that can really help these projects, not really uh, from, from inception, but really totally to implementation. Correct. It's really beyond the POC. How do you take the thing beyond the POC, beyond putting an API? How could you take it to the business and how do you say make them, uh, you know, your supporter, your cheerleaders in the implementation and your partners over many, many projects? I think this is really my, I would say, my strongest trait. And is there is there something that you could you could mention if if before you started working, right? We all learn things the hard way as we get into a real job. Is, is there one thing that you wish somebody had told you before you started working so you didn't have to learn it the hard way? 
yeah. Uh, who you work with is almost more important <laughs> than than what you do, to be honest. So what I mean by the the culture and the company that you work with and the company's culture is really key. Who you work with, what type of people are you working with, correct? What is the culture of the company? That's really most important. Uh, I would not accept the job personally <laughs> if I don't think, let's just say, the culture of the company is not uh, the culture I want to be part of. So that that's, that's really the one thing that... Uh, that you know you learn um you know over your years of experience and you know sometimes when the phone rings and i answer and i learn whatever and i start asking around to understand more about the culture of the company i have in the past said no to offers very 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 generous offers because i want to work with you know quality people and a culture that's really incredible correct that that's that's the main thing for me you know when i think about students maybe interviewing for their first job you know the, the an easy way to implement what you talked about when you don't necessarily have a lot of experience to know how to compare cultures and so forth uh, would be if you don't really feel like you're clicking with the people you're interviewing with, that should be a red flag, right? Because just like with a marriage or a friendship, you're going to spend lots and lots and lots of hours with these people. And when you're interviewing, you ought to feel like, hey, I really like these people. I could hang out with these people. You know, I, I, I feel like I'm thinking on the same wavelength. And if you leave an interview saying, yeah, they're really smart and this is a great company, to have on my resume, um, yeah, the people are okay. That's probably going to be, uh, you know, a, a bad job for that person after a year or two. Agreed. So, uh, speaking of students, then you know, obviously, uh, that's what we do here at KSU. We educate students, get them ready for the workplace. If you had sort of one key piece of advice that you would give students as they as they come out, whether it's with a bachelor's, a master's, or a PhD, and they're going to be coming to talk to you or someone on your team about a, a, a job. What, what's the advice you have in terms of how they can best position themselves uh, to get hired? Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, the one thing in my mind when I'm looking at students, what is it that I'm looking for? Correct. I look at the skill set. You know, does your skill set match the job that that, you know, that, that that's posted out there? I mean, not every job, you know, requires for people to be expert in machine learning, correct? I need people that just say that are experts in natural language processing because I have lots of projects in that, correct? I may need people that are really very good in statistics because I have a lot of projects in that. So I guess what I'm simply saying for the student, match your skill set with, with the job, correct? The, and really the, the, if you want to call it the job requirement, dig deep into what's really, what type of skill set uh, are being asked. So during actually my interview, I always ask the, the candidate, uh, what is really, you know, your best area of analytics and data science that you think you're really good at and which areas you really don't think. And the reason I do that is just to try to, you know, in some sense split, correct? What is it that you're really passionate about and you really can say, hey, I can do this day in and day out versus the thing I'm not really interested in. So I think if the student asks themselves that question, correct, they should say, oh, you know what, maybe I should focus on these set of companies rather than being all over, correct? trying to find, uh, you know, match with maybe perhaps really, I'm not a good match. But that's always in my interview, you know, tell me the things that you're really passionate about in data science, the real type of things that you want to do pretty much. And then it's interesting, it always clears up very quickly what you really people are interested in doing versus not doing. So speaking of interest then, let, let, let's dig into one of yours. You've done a lot of types of analytics, applied a lot of different methods to a lot of different yeah. data. If you had to pick one, yeah combination of method and data that is most dear to your heart that you that you say this is my favorite thing if i could do this all day i'm happy what would that be 
in. Now you're interviewing a very good bill. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so let me tell you the one that I'm really, really passionate. I'm very passionate about stochastic system, correct? So stochastic system is about, you know, modeling uh, processes. Uh, obviously, every process, every model is not accurate. So you have this noise component, correct? And, you know, you model something and you think, obviously, it has noise and how you filter that noise, correct? How you filter that noise out, uh, how you really estimate uh, with uncertainties, correct? Obviously, you always estimate uncertainty, but really understanding, correct, randomness, correct, and the stochasticity of things and really modeling these things and really creating algorithm that can deal with the noise and really generate exceptional uh, estimation that can drive optimization and other things is, is really something that uh, I'm, uh, I really like very much. Yeah, and I've done it for many years, but I've done obviously many other things. You know, I've right. done, you know, I combined that with machine learning. I've done this and whatever other things. But yeah, but that was probably the, still the one after 20 years I'll go back to. It is certainly my passion. Excellent. Well, if you think about over over time uh, that you've been in this field, what do you think something that's changed the most? If you look back at both what was happening and how, how analysts would have spent their time uh, in your first job and, and what's going on today, what, what's something you think is, has been most changed? I mean, the thing that you always see, correct, is when you're developing these solutions and you're implementing them in, in, soft, in systems, correct, in decision support system, you know, analysts, because you mentioned the word analysts, I can think of analysts when I was, you know, in the airline industry. Oh, my God, they were, they were doing even much, much more, correct, because the system have, you know, done a lot of the grunt work, and but they're doing really the exciting things. The point is, you know, it really increased the capabilities of what an analyst can do you know, versus things they could never even imagine in the past. So in some sense, it's this ability to crunch all this data, uh, present it, provide the insight, correct, even the optimization, even the decisioning, the recommendation, at least of decisioning, and let basically the analyst, you know, the person being out there to say, yes, I'm good with that, or the model for whatever reason, and there are instances, doesn't know of something that is not really modeled, example, something happening in the market, correct? Or some some disruption or whatever so this is where the analyst comes in it, they should really typically come in to make in some sense those changes for those situation where the system the algorithm doesn't have knowledge of what perhaps is happening out there but besides that it really automates all of that and let them focus on those special cases this is really when you know bill that actually you know your algorithm are doing well so an example let me give you in the airline industry let's just say you know you had a disruption because of weather correct and you had estimated some stuff regarding demand and whatever. You probably want to change all of those, correct? But, but then right. not necessarily the system has information about that. So this is when the analyst comes in and they made adjustment because of something that the system didn't know as an example. So that's what I'm referring to. Okay. Well, before we run out of time, let's finish with a question uh, of looking forward. We, we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, looking backward. What's, what's uh, a trend that you see coming on strong that's going to change the, the fields of analytics and data science in the two, three, five-year time frame? I mean, I mean, I know people throw AI here and there, but, you know, I want to maybe take a different approach and really be a little bit more specific, correct? So we had in the past, what do you call it, the descriptive, then come the predictive and the prescriptive, correct? This, you are, okay, so we did all of that. Where are we really going in my mind? In my mind, there is this whole, you know, in some sense, creating capabilities a la human, correct? Which some people call AI. You know, if you're mimicking a human, that's different, correct? That's not really 
<laughs> becoming you know yeah, capable of doing things that humans do. But really, the thing that's probably going to be a little longer, it's not even in my mind, three or five years, is cog cognitive analytics. I call it cognitive. And in my way of describing things, I said we had descriptive, we had predictive, we have prescriptive, we're moving, moving to cognitive analytics. So cognitive is the one that, that's next in my mind. Great. Well, I want to thank you. I think you've provided some great insights for people today, and it's always a pleasure talking with you. And I know you travel back and forth between Atlanta and Texas on a, on a regular basis. So um, people can catch you in either of those locations. See you sometime soon in Atlanta in person. Yeah, I look forward to it. And thank, thanks so much, and, and uh, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you, Bill.